Hi there, it's Anita Johnson, and just a quick request before we get started. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you catch our podcast. That helps other people to find us. And of course, give us a high rating. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> coming up on Making Contact. I just felt the understanding that I'm not doing a bad thing, I'm doing the right thing was so important, and it felt like that the whole way through. Today, we're airing part two of a series about post-row abortion access, produced by our friends at The Response Podcast. Since the loss of federal protection, access to abortion care has become more difficult, especially in the South, the Plains, and the Midwest. But the movement for reproductive justice has only strengthened. Today, we hear about mutual aid efforts to connect folks to medical abortion and emergency contraception. But we also acknowledge that reproductive justice is about more than abortion access. Well, we want to build out a farm for sustainable food. Eh, do y'all really need to do that? Like, what's that got to do with abortion access? Stay with us to hear the answer to that question. But first, we're going to Florida. Okay, um, my name's Angel Jones. I'm a 28-year-old mom of two, a stay-at-home mom of two. <laughs> I feel like the conversation about abortion is pointed in a lot of incorrect directions. I think a lot of times, especially when, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of arguing why it's so important, people will, you know, throw out things like, well, you're irresponsible or... Or, you know, it's your fault, so take responsibility and this kind of thing in order to muddle it down into, I would say, let's get, get dirty with the way of dealing with abortion instead of looking at it as a human right, which is what it should be. So um, I've been with my husband for 10 years. And um, in the year 2020, I believe it was December 2020, I found out that I was pregnant. We already have two kids, both who are on the autism spectrum one who is more severely autistic than the other. And this was a very chaotic time for my family. We were pulling it together and we were doing really well getting them services. And then, um, of course, it was like, boom, I'm pregnant. And I remember thinking, you know, <sighs> I was happy at first because I'm with my husband and we wanted more kids, but then realizing how difficult the situation would be to continue the pregnancy at that time. So it was a really big decision that we talked about for a couple of weeks and we decided it just, it wasn't the right time to grow our family. And so I began the process of looking into abortion clinics locally. And that process was extremely scary. Not just the process of, of okay, it's going to be a lot of money, but Pulling up to abortion clinics, there are people screaming at you, taking pictures of your car, just making a really difficult situation already much worse. And once we got through that, after finding out how much it was, I was shocked to hear that an abortion where I was, I think I was at uh, six weeks, I was really early, and they were saying that it would be 700, and if it got up to nine weeks, it would be eight. And there were some funds to help people who needed help with the money, but they were only available to women who had jobs. Like you had to show pay stubs to get the discounted rates. And I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, so I had no options when it came to that. 
And I remember just feeling, um, sorry. <laughs> I just remember feeling like, um, if I don't scrape together this $800, then it's going to be thousands for the next 18 years when I already had two kids who really needed me. And I went home, you know, wallowed for a little bit. And I thought this, this cannot be the only way. And so I started to research, you know, like, how do you do um, an abortion at home? Is there any options for online pills or things like that? And I remember being terrified because I was just, I'm like, this is completely uncharted territory. I had never seen anybody talk about mailing abortion pills ever. And, and it was just completely new. But I researched, I read every single form I could think about. I read every single article from even like the, the right wing people saying that this is going to kill you. And the people who are saying this is important, tell more people about it. And I, I stumbled upon Aid Access. Aid Access is a nonprofit which was started in 2018 by Dutch doctor Rebecca Gompertz. It consists of a committed team of doctors, activists, and advocates for abortion rights who provide abortion pills by mail. Dr. Gompertz also founded Women on Waves, an organization which employs vessels to travel the world providing abortions in countries where the procedure is illegal. She's estimated that through her various efforts, she's been able to provide around two to 300,000 people with abortion services worldwide. And so I started to narrow my search to just about who's used aid access before. And I saw a few here and there saying like, yes, it works, it's fine, it's safe. But still that fear was there. But because the situation was so dire and I knew that this was the only way that I would be able to afford an abortion, I went ahead and I went through their process, which is a screening process first. And they ask you to you know, provide a name, an ID. If you can offer an ultrasound, they ask for that. You know, they ask if you need help with the money. And at that time, they were charging, I believe it's 105 euros, and that's $95 in U.S. dollars. And um, after I went through the process, I paid, and, and I was sent the pills in about two to three weeks, somewhere around that range. After receiving her abortion medication in the mail, Angel was able to successfully go through with her self-managed abortion at eight and a half weeks into her pregnancy. So I think one of the scariest things about self-managed abortions is that you're going through something that feels like, you know, medical and scary by yourself. And they do cover that in the screening process. They do say, you know, if you feel like something is wrong, go to the hospital. You can't, they can't test you for these pills. You can't be charged in certain states. And they let you know what states are, are you know, more strict about these kind of things. So I think it's important to talk about that part. And I think that as women, it's already a process that's hard. It's already a very nuanced situation for anybody choosing that. And to have the idea that you may actually have to face criminal punishment for making this decision that's difficult anyway, but that might be better for you. I feel for every woman in a state like that because it, it really is terrifying. Medication abortion, better known as abortion pills, was first approved by the FDA in the year 2000. It's extremely safe and effective for pregnancies of less than 12 weeks. According to Whole Women's Health, the FDA-approved regimen for medication abortion consists of two medications currently available by prescription. Mefepristone, which works by blocking progesterone, a hormone needed for a pregnancy to continue, and misoprostol, taken 24 to 48 hours later, which induces contractions and ends the pregnancy. 
a person's ability to self-administer mefepristone and misoprostol after receiving instructions from a provider is well-established, and it's been proved to be safe and effective for someone to do so without medical supervision. I've done a lot of research about it before, and even after I've used it, I've seen the doctor, I believe her name is Rebecca, who has really championed for this to keep running. And I'm not sure if that's exactly the definition of mutual aid, but this woman, she has fought with the FDA to be able to send her her pills into the USA. She's she's won. She's still able to keep doing it. And on top of that, just the way that they handled the situation, everything is handled very gently for the people dealing with it. And, and even when they thought that I might not be able to pay, they were like, okay, well, we can knock the price down again, you know, like whatever you need. And I felt... I just felt the understanding that I'm not doing a bad thing. I'm doing the right thing was so important. And it felt like that the whole way through. And I've, I've tried to tell people about it if they ever ask me about it, because I think that this should be available more widespread and should be talked about much more. Because I, I believe that is what mutual aid is, what she's doing. So today there's uh, three of us from Gulf South Plan B, three collective members from Gulf South Plan B. We all live in South Louisiana and have a variety of backgrounds. We all have been involved in abortion access work and practical support work in some way, shape, or form, but each bring different experiences with disaster response or language justice, disability justice, harm reduction. And so yeah, there's three of us, three of us here today. Gulf South Plan B is a small collective that provides free emergency contraception, primarily by mail, to anyone who requests it. They asked us to remain anonymous for this story. Emergency contraception, known colloquially as Plan B, is still legal in Louisiana. These pills are not like the abortion pills provided by groups like Aid Access or Just the Pill, who we heard from in Part 1. They don't induce abortions, but instead prevent pregnancy by delaying ovulation. Pregnancy prevention is an extremely important part of reproductive health care, and providing access to this kind of contraception is part of a broader reproductive justice framework. Especially in states like Louisiana, since Dobbs, abortion has been almost entirely banned in Louisiana, with very few exceptions. And like most other states with abortion bans, Louisiana criminalizes the procedure and prosecutes providers. Doctors and others can face up to 15 years in prison if convicted. So I think when you're looking at the landscape of you know, any particular state or region or city, their reproductive health rights and justice landscape, there are a number of roles that individuals and organizations can fill, be it abortion funding, be it practical support, be it clinic escorting or defense, be it emergency contraception provision. There are a diversity of tactics and many different needs that, you know, any group of people can come together to commit themselves to provide or needs that they try to fill. For us, we had laid the groundwork for providing emergency contraception in this way really about a year ago and had worked to create a project that would feel sustainable and responsive and then soft launched, if you will, not too long before the draft leak for the Dobbs-Scotus case. So for us, there are 
many ways that people can meaningfully engage with the you know support of reproductive choices of their community members and emergency contraception is one you know one of many ways that people can support one another both in a pre and post row world so there are financial barriers to accessing emergency contraception it can often run $40 if not more there are logistical barriers to accessing emergency contraception especially if you're in a more rural area um, having access to pharmacies and so people having just one more tool in their tool belt available to them in the event that they may need emergency contraception or someone that they know or even care about may need an emergency contraception is just one of many ways to help keep one another safe. There were always barriers before people had to travel. I mean, we mentioned there were three clinics in Louisiana before. The vast majority of people in Louisiana do not live in one of the areas where one of those three clinics was located. So people were already having to travel and arrange for overnight stays and childcare. And that's just, that timeline is extended now. People are going farther, they're traveling for longer, the costs are higher, the barriers are higher. That's the thing that's changed as of right now for people that do put together the ability to travel, whether that's through external funding or borrowing money from friends or family or putting off other needed bills or payments. And the other thing that's changed that's really big, obviously, is the criminalization, potential prosecution, is it's just dangerous in a very different and bodiless way, if that makes any sense. It's, it's, it's not a type of danger that a lot of people understand, especially now that so many people are using the internet, using Google to try to find resources. We've already seen one case in a different state where messages on social media were used to prosecute somebody. So that is a little bit of a whole new world. And I think that's going to be really difficult moving forward. There's been a growing movement to protect online privacy, particularly in our new post-Roe era. For example, led by the Alphabet Workers Union, more than 650 Google employees have signed a petition demanding the company protect the location and browser history of people searching for content and information about abortion from law enforcement agencies. And Google Maps has agreed to delete search histories when people visit abortion clinics. Of course, this kind of pushback is not nearly enough to protect people, but at least it's being talked about. You're listening to Making Contact and our friends at The Response Podcast. Visit our website, radioproject.org, to see an infographic in English and Spanish on digital security best practices. The poster was made by the Digital Defense Fund and is shareable on social media. We will have it available on our Twitter account, making underscore contact, our Facebook and Instagram, making contact radio project. Now, back to the show. Gulf South Plan B also provides bulk amounts of emergency contraceptives, or EC, to community partners for distribution throughout the state of Louisiana. They also maintain a small stockpile of emergency contraception to distribute in the event of climate disasters such as hurricanes. A lot of the, the shape that our project takes right now has been supported by our like friends and comrades with Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. We spent quite a bit of time in the weeks and months following Hurricane Ida, quite a bit of time in our you know regular <laughs> supply distribution work across Plaquemine Parish, Terrebonne Parish, Orleans Parish, providing you know not just tarps and roofing nails and water, but also having alongside that emergency contraception, pregnancy tests, menstrual supplies. 
supplies and having all of those supplies available, you know, in the same Penske truck, if you will. So it's just as normal to say, yeah, you need gloves and tarps and water. Do you also need emergency contraception? Does anyone in your house need emergency contraception? Do you need Narcan? Does anyone in your house need Narcan? Explaining to folks in an extremely destigmatized, on-the-ground, face-to-face way, how EC works, how it is not an abortion pill, and, you know, just having all of these supplies be provided in just in the same breath, in the same truck. It's just as normal to grab, you know, mold remediation supplies as it is to grab, you know, emergency contraception for your household at this time. In the web space that we've been occupying We do have an option for people who fill out our request form to talk about other types of services that they would be interested in, whether that be more information about pregnancy options, whether that be creating a small distro hub where they live. We're open to taking any kind of feedback and advice and requests from people about the services that would be most impactful for them when they reach out to us for Plan B in the mail. So we're very interested in being elastic and kind of growing to fit the shape of people's needs. We firmly believe in everything for everyone and people having access to all the things that they need to have not just their basic needs met, but for themselves and their families to thrive. One of the perspectives by which we approach the work that we do here is that we as a small group of volunteers are committed to providing one piece of that puzzle. And part of the possibility, the potential, the joy in building power across a region, across a state, through intertwining movements, is knowing what it is that we can provide and what we can offer to people with confidence and sustainability, and then to find and to continue to rejoice in all of these new emerging ways to to sort of marry our work with, with others. And sort of through that perspective, build a more robust mutual aid movement through principles of solidarity and dual power. And yeah. I mean, I just think that we need to think about mutual aid in a more broader sense. Here's Laurie Roberts of the Mississippi Freedom Fund, who we previously heard from in part one of this series. I know when we bought the fund check, if no one has ever heard of us before, we bought a building. It, we literally bought a trap house, okay? We bought a trap house that's, you know, three bedrooms, two baths, and it has like a, a back apartment that's another one bedroom, one bath. And I really bought it because I was like, well, we can use it for so many things. But then I also, when we were designing like how we were going to put in, what kind of furniture we were going to put into it and how we were going to design the space, like every room has extra sleeping space in it, built into it. Murphy beds, hideaway beds, whatever. I remember people were like, what are you doing? What is that about? And I said, all I'm going to tell you is I moved to Jackson in 2005 and Katrina hit and everyone from New Orleans came to Jackson. Every time there's a hurricane on the coast, People come to Jackson. And all I know is if there is something that happens and our activist folks have to come to Jackson, I want us to be able to be a base for evacuation for our people. We may only be able to house 
10 people, but let us be able to house 10 people. You feel what I'm saying? Like, let us be able to house 10 people and hopefully have our own electricity and maybe our own rainwater collection. You know what I'm saying? And be able to hold down our folks for like a little bit. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about is like, it can't just be, oh, well, we got some food at the last minute to hand out. Like we have to be thinking broader and I don't want to sound like doomsday prepper, like (laughs) progressive person. But in all honesty, Jackson goes through boil water alerts all the time. We go through issues with infrastructure all the time. And it's just something that I've been thinking about broader often. I think about it a lot, about how not just for our org, but other orgs, that mutual aid needs to be thought of in a much broader, like what are we doing to build our infrastructure, our community building, our education networks within our mutual aid networks and bases to be more sustainable versus reactive. In fact, Jackson just experienced a boil water alert this summer when tens of thousands of residents went without water for two to three weeks. Many organizations stepped in to fill the very deliberate gaps in support left by the state of Mississippi, delivering water and providing resources for residents of the state capital. Lori has been distributing water in Jackson every day since the 2021 water crisis, when the city's water system failed for over a month. She's been a vocal critic of what she refers to as a state of willful neglect in the majority Black city, which is not just limited to boil alerts, but also to lead contamination in the water. Rather than just responding when there's a crisis, she's been involved in efforts to build sustainable water resources in Jackson for years. I mean, like, I live the connections, right? Like, as a disabled activist, and, you know, as a disabled femme, you know, non-binary person who lives in the South, like, but I was born up North, you know, like, I carry a lot of identities. And then also... I've lived in different places. I've had a lot of different experiences and I just try to see things from a lot of different perspectives, but also keeping in mind who we should be centering, which is not the people who are normally centered, right? I'm not here to center, you know, the the people with the most money, the people with the most access, the people with the most resources. They don't need me to center them. They're already centered 365 days a year in 24 hours a day. So I don't need to center them and their needs. I'm here for the folks who are in my community. And we like to say at MRFF, like we, the kind of feminism and and reproductive justice that we do, you know, we here for the baby mamas and the scrippers and, you know, like the sex workers and the drug users and the folks that people don't care about, you know what I'm saying? And the foster kids who have aged out of the system and the houseless folks, you know, and the people who don't vote because they're disenfranchised, the people who don't vote because they don't think they should vote. You know what I mean? Like the people who feel like they don't have a voice and the people who just are too tired. You know what I'm saying? Like the people are who tired, they're just tired. We hear for all of them folks, right? That's who we ride for. The other folks don't need us. (laughs) They don't need us. Like, that's who we are. Here's Golf Plan B again. As a small group of people, we bring something that is, like, at its face, honestly, just so simple as just choir Plan B, distribute Plan B, two thumbs up, yay. Uh, (laughs) You know, all of these lessons that we've learned either personally and intimately through 
so many of us being born and raised in South Louisiana and through our respective movement work and organizing work, learning over and over and over. Uh, I'm avoiding anything that smacks of a resilience narrative here, but, you know, learning over and over and over <laughs> that what we have is each other and we have everything that we need. And, you know, whether it is providing tarps and roofing nails, whether it's organizing mucky and gutting crews, whether it's providing plan B, whether it's fundraising to pay for someone's abortion, whether it is, you know, any of these things, we are living not just through a series of acute crises, but we're living under the crisis that is capitalism. We are living under the crisis that is white supremacy, or we're living through the crisis that is never-ending climate disaster. And the tools that we learn from one movement that we hone in one movement, they are not only easily translated, but like naturally translated across many. And what makes a project like providing one specific thing like Plan B, in my perspective, powerful is when we put it in conversation with what other folks are providing and to whom. And that's how we create an ecosystem that can keep each other safe. Sometimes it's very hard to get that through people's heads. When I say, oh, I want to go buy a bunch of stuff from the dollar store. Oh, that's okay. You know, like that's a charity mindset. The acceptable things that like low income people should have. Right. But when you try to get people to reach for more than that, where it's like, well, we want to build out a farm for sustainable food. Eh, do y'all really need to do that? Like, what's that got to do with abortion access? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not necessarily about abortion access. It's about reproductive justice, which has to do with all of those things. Like, how do you have a healthy pregnancy if you can't have food access? How do you have healthy children if you don't have food access? When I talk about why we need solar panels on our property, right? Because we have bad infrastructure in the South and why it matters for us in a place where there's constant infrastructure issues, why it matters for us to be able to be a hub in our community of power, especially in a place where there's high asthma rates, people need to have access to being able to use a nebulizer, stuff like that in the middle of an emergency, even if it's a small spot. Some people get it and some people don't. This is just a beginning of an extremely violent, heavily surveilled, like reproductive carceral landscape. And at the same time, our work, and I say our in the most like broad sweeping way, our work is extremely cut out for us. But that also means that it is a, a new beginning for the ways that we learn, dream, create, and protect together. Yeah, well, I'll say that Southern ingenuity and Southern innovation and Southern resilience gives me motivation. Like my father, I say this all the time, but people probably tired of being like, Lord, shut up about your daddy. But real talk, my dad was born in 1936 in in Blount Springs, Alabama. My grandparents were born in 1905. I just think like folks who came through all of that, like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I think we can, I think we can power through this. You feel me? I mean, my dad survived sharecropping, you know, and my grandparents survived the red summer. You know, I just try to put things in perspective. I'm not saying that we aren't going through some really hard stuff. We are going through some really horrible, horrible, horrible things that are our own horrible struggles. I just think that, like, we shouldn't have to persevere. We shouldn't have to be resilient. 
we shouldn't have to lean on that legacy, but we here now. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm tired of having to be like, oh, we're resilient. Like, I'm over it. I just want to, like, luxuriate in black joy. Like, that's what I want to do. What I want to do right now is be like, oh, let's be all about black joy and POC unity and, like, <laughs> build some some of that. Like, but instead we got to do all this crisis mode stuff. But that's cool. We can do community building while we do that. And that makes me hopeful too, right? So, I mean, there's always room to build and grow in crisis. And that makes me hopeful too. You've been listening to Making Contact and a story from our partners at The Response Podcast. Visit us at our website, radioproject.org, where you can find more information from the conversations today, as well as an infographic on digital security best practices. On Twitter, we are making underscore contact. On Instagram, we are making contact radio project. I'm Amy Gastelum. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Until next week.